Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. On this episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light, brought to you by the STS Workforce on Diversity and Inclusion, we sit down with Dr. Elaine Singh. People talk about the triple threat in academic surgery, but Dr. Singh walks the walk. She is professor of surgery in the Division of Adult Cardiothoracic Surgery at UCSF and the Chief of Cardiac Surgery at the San Francisco VA Medical Center. In addition to clinical acumen in adult cardiac surgery, she is an incredible educator and a surgeon scientist who has been funded by the NIH. In our conversation, we discuss her growing up an only child of college professors in North Carolina, entering MIT at the age of 16 and graduating Phi Beta Kappa, near-death experiences and training and the importance of mentorship when her CT surgery fellow, a young Dr. Doug Wood, encouraged her to enter our profession. I hope you enjoy. Thank you very much for joining us today on Same Surgeon, Different Light. I'm really appreciative of you coming out and talk with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here and uh, looking forward to it. We all know that you are a professor of surgery at UCSF and you are Chief of Cardiothoracic Surgery at the San Francisco VA. That's correct. Great. So, you know, we're, we're recording this at the time of COVID-19 pandemic, and it's really affecting us in, in different ways. How are you all holding up at the VA? We are holding up okay right now. I mean, it's definitely been sort of the largest surge that we've seen. So I would say that we have, we've had double the number of COVID patients that we had in the spring. And so certainly it's definitely a greater surge from our perspective. At least in my service, I feel like the spring was actually much busier. It seemed that when everyone was on lockdown and the patients were kind of waiting till the last minute to show up to the hospital after they'd had their MI and they just couldn't take it anymore at home, that we were seeing a lot of sort of sicker patients show up in the spring. 
Um, but we aren't really seeing that as much um, now as we had in the spring. So it is a little bit different from the clinical perspective from the spring and the, and, um, the holiday time. You know, it's challenging, especially from a, a cardiothoracic surgery perspective on balancing the exposure of our patients to COVID-19 coming in to see us. Uh, San Francisco VA is, if any of our listeners have never seen it, it's, it's, I'm sure there are real estate developers, you know, oh, yeah. sneaking around the corner trying to take that property from our, our government because it's a beautiful area. Uh, but balancing the safety of our patients, but really our patients, you know, have non-elective needs, especially in cardiac surgery. That's very, very true. And so if anything, I mean, I think we're at those stage where some of those elective procedures and orthopedics and things like that have stopped. But I would say that throughout the pandemic, I mean, our specialties, lung cancer, cardiac surgery, all of these things really had to keep proceeding forward, balancing exactly what you were saying, the risks to the patient, but also the risks if they were to get it COVID in the community and not have a treated, you know, heart disease. So I think we've sort of walked that line very carefully, but I think we did a pretty good job of, you know, really keeping our patients safe and yet proceeding to continue to take care of them throughout the pandemic. How did you do that? Did you work with your administration, with your infectious disease docs or, or your epidemiologists? I think part of it was um, there were sort of guidelines set by the VA that set, you know, how urgent patients were looking at sort of, we, I pulled up all of sort of our lengths of stay for different types of procedures and then looking at the acuity of the patients. And so at least early on in the lockdown, um, we actually decided we could proceed safely in the first few weeks with things like transcatheter aortic valve replacement um, because they would only be in the hospital for like one or two days. And then after a few weeks of that, we actually went back to also doing our urgent, you know, bypass patients, um, aortic stenosis patients. And so in many ways, I think cardiac surgery and vascular surgery were, were always around the hospital, you know, during those times. And the patients, frankly, were actually a lot sicker and a lot more urgent. I think because all of those hospitals were shut down at the time, they would just ship them to us because nobody else you know, they were all scared of COVID and we didn't know what was going to happen. And we still wanted to make sure that we could provide care to the veterans. So we really tried to be available for them. At, again, at the time of this airing, we've had emergency use authorization approval for the Pfizer vaccine uh, and just now had emergency use emergency use authorization for the Moderna vaccine. Where are, where's the San Francisco VA in regards to the vaccine and availability and dissemination? The Palo Alto VA is a COVID center site. So they actually received the Pfizer vaccine. We're receiving Moderna. And so we're anticipating getting that next week and having all of the first line providers um, uh, vaccinated next week, actually. So yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Actually. <laughs> you're going <you're> to <laughs> take your uh, I got stuck a uh, picture for Twitter and social media and, <laughs> yeah, and sure. to everybody, you know, the, your population is by definition at risk, you know, Absolutely. Elderly, a lot of um, uh, comorbidities and et cetera. 
Mm-hmm. Have you encountered thoughts and opinions from your patients about the vaccine or has that not come up yet in your practice? It hasn't actually come up that much. It's been fairly limited, but one of the patients actually did mention they wanted it. So that was actually a good sign, but um, it hasn't been really discussed that much from their perspective. From their perspective, they mostly, I'm really trying to just have them protect themselves from community spread. So we certainly do, as all centers do, kind of get their testing pre, um, pre-procedure, and then we also like to test them before they discharge just to make sure that they're okay at that point. And then I also just give them very um, strict guidelines to follow sort of afterwards and try to make sure they still remain quarantined so that they, while they're recovering from their surgery, don't get exposed to it. You mentioned the TAVR patients and and other transvascular catheterizations. We'll get back to that and how you brought that innovation uh, to the VA. But, you know, getting back to sort of your superhero origin story, uh, so to speak. <laughs> you, know, you were born in Georgia. And I was born in Georgia, yes. Moved to North Carolina. Right. So my dad was working as a professor in Georgia when I was born, and he actually got a job at Catawba College um, teaching uh, economics. And my mother had a master's in library science. So she actually, um, he had actually managed to get her a job too as a professor there as well. So they both moved uh, to Salisbury, North Carolina, and then they became tenured professors there. So that's basically kind of where I grew up. Now Salisbury, North Carolina, where is that in the North Carolina landscape? So if you know where sort of Greensboro and Charlotte is, Mm. it's basically halfway in between. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a pretty small town. I mean, I will say that when I grew up, you know, it's sort of like we didn't really have any big malls or anything. We actually had to go to Charlotte or Greensboro if we if we wanted to go to a mall, for instance. So growing up in small town, North Carolina, oftentimes people who grew up in small towns, they stay there forever because of the family, the community that that might exist, or they can't wait to get out of the small town. Right. Were you on either extremes? Were you somewhere in the middle? I think I was, I wanted to get out of there. (laughs) So, I mean, I actually went to high school at uh, the North Carolina School of Science and Math, which was in Durham. Mm -hmm. And so I actually, that's, that was one of the first, I think there are only two in the nation where it was a state supported um, boarding school for gifted and talented students. Um, and so uh, that was a great opportunity to just, you know, actually have a really solid sort of education and I think really opened up uh, the opportunities to kind of um, go from there and, and, and get sort of a, a more rigorous education. So it's, it's, you know, interesting sort of that gifted and talented education track. You know, while you were there, you know, obviously you're surrounded by folks who are incredible learners and et cetera, you know, what were some of the lessons you learned from uh, interpersonal dynamics and sort of that sort of tracked education? So I will say um, it, for me, it was actually really helpful. I think that growing up, I kind of felt sort of stuck and 
kind of not really understood in many ways, and it was a very small town. And so by having people from many different backgrounds, and all of them were incredibly intelligent and sort of thoughtful, and just more, uh, in some ways, just open-minded and accepting, um, I really felt that that was really important it was a very important part of just being able to sort of start to feel accepted for who you are. I think certainly growing up in a small town, I mean, there were literally like maybe two other Asian families in the entire town. Um, so, I mean, I think it just made a difference to just have that diversity and just be able to feel a part of like a greater community from that perspective. What were the expectations of your high school leadership for the the high school administrators for the students what do they want to see you become and your compatriots become when they graduated what was their goals for you or their expectations i think the goals for just overall for the graduates was just to kind of if they were well prepared um, in their education, then they could actually succeed in, in STEM areas and actually bring forth sort of new innovations, new technologies. And in, in fact, I think in many ways, they did sort of expect a lot of people to end up, you know, going back to their towns and being in North Carolina and doing those things. And so I think in many ways, what you said is actually true. The vast majority of people that actually do go to that school end up staying there and contributing to their communities with the advanced knowledge that they've gained and been able to get sort of higher level education. I think I really wanted to sort of explore the like world outside of North Carolina and really just just have a broader sort of perspective. Um, and so I ended up leaving and, and sort of not going back in that sense. But, um, but I do think that that was kind of the purpose of that program. And I think they've, they've been very successful at that. I, it really does seem like there are still a lot of people that do end up staying and contributing to the, you know, STEM technologies within North Carolina itself. So leaving high school, you went on to MIT in Cambridge. And uh, at MIT, you uh, incredibly underachieved. Uh, you only graduated uh, Phi Beta Kappa with a GPA of 5.0, is that how? That's how? actually just MIT's grading system. So like if you're a straight A student, you, they had a different sort of scale. So they made it a 5.0 scale instead of a 4.0 scale. Or... So I, I still, do you get a plaque on your wall if you get a 5.0 <laughs> from MIT? Not really, no. <laughs> so uh, uh, do you have the Beaver class ring that do actually, I do have the beaver class ring. I actually don't wear it, but I do have it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So MIT has always been a sort of a fascinating school to look at in, in any of the, the really technical schools similar to uh, MIT um, that are very focused on the STEM and, and engineering. With that type of focus at MIT, did you feel that you maybe missed out on some of the humanities or liberal arts, or did you get that opportunity there? You know, I think MIT is a really unique school in the sense that although it's very heavily weighted to, I mean, you know, everyone is taking all of the science classes and calculus in their freshman year, 
But because they're known as a science and engineering um, school, then essentially they required us to take all of these classes. So for instance, they required a lot of humanities. So we had to take humanities throughout our entire time there. So I took a number of literature classes. I took um, a music class. And interestingly, they sort of, it, because they sort of wanted to, imp they made it a requirement to actually do physical education, for instance. So there were like eight sort of, you know, courses that you had to do in like physical education. So you had to take, or like, I, I think I took swimming. I actually took pistol for one of them. Like I learned to shoot a gun and oh, wow. like, yeah, I mean, they literally just had all these things that were required and my best friend actually from um, high school had actually gone to Brown University. And so she actually spent, I think maybe like a semester um, at MIT or something like that. And what she told me was like, it was really interesting from her perspective going to such a liberal arts college that um, it, they didn't have the same requirement for saying, oh, you had to do all these STEM things as a liberal arts major. So she would just, she could basically just like never have to take math again or never have to take science again. And yet she thought it was interesting that all of us, when we were doing all of the science and tech fields, we were required to do all the sort of humanities and physical education and all of these types of things. So I actually thought that in many ways, it gave us a very broad education in that perspective. Um, and so kind of looking at it from both sides, I could see, I was like, well, maybe they should require you to take some science when you go to a liberal arts college. Um, but I actually found that experience at MIT to probably be one of the more transformative, um, at least for me, kind of growing up, because it's it's like you're really exposed to the idea of trying to think for yourself and to try to look at problems in a way that you need to solve it without having memorized anything. So I think one of the key things when in my major, which was biology, was that every test was open book mm. because the idea was that you know, in order to solve the questions that you'd have on exams, you know, you would have the material available if you needed to, but you had to come up with a creative solution or really understand it and synthesize the information in a way that you would never find the answer in the book. You really had to think through it. Um, and so one of those aspects I actually found as being one of the most valuable experiences I had while I was at MIT. I mean, that's a really fascinating way to approach things. Do, do you translate that sort of learning strategy to your trainees? So it's probably not so much for the training aspect, because I do think that in many ways, um, surgery has, you know, has been founded, you know, with the house sort of Halstedian principles and things like that, that are, that have a lot of tradition, and you really do learn a lot by experiencing that. I think what it's really helped is to, especially when you're developing an academic career, is to look at questions that have been unanswered and trying to kind of figure out with what you have available, how are, the, how are ways that you can try to answer some of those questions 
in a way that's out of the box. And so I think that's probably where it's kind of helped me the most is to try to understand that in sort of delving in the research questions. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. But uh, after uh, college, you hopped on the red line to park and then took the green line to uh, (laughs) medical school. Were you HST at Harvard Medical School? I was actually HST, yeah. Can you describe what HST is? I think they've changed the name, but uh, what it is and, and what was the goal of that curriculum at Harvard Medical School? So that was the uh, the health sciences technology program, and it was basically a joint program that was developed between Harvard and MIT. Um, It'll date me, but essentially the sort of new pathway at Harvard was new (laughs) right when I was starting. So sort of the, the general curriculum that was not HST had just started all of these sort of problem-based, case-based learning, those types of small group sessions um, at at Harvard, whereas the MIT section of it was, our program was actually the first two years were still very much a traditional pathway in terms of learning that medical education, but it was set so that we kind of looked at it um, also from a sort of scientific and research perspective. And so we would actually have classes at MIT. And so for the first two years, we would spend like half the time at Harvard and then half the time we'd be taking transportation over to MIT and having classes there. And so, it really allowed the students to kind of start thinking through if they were going to, you know, do academics, if they were going to do research. Some people got masters, some people got PhDs. But I think because I I actually really loved my experience at MIT, and I wanted MIT to have its own medical school, actually, because I really liked the thought process of how we learned. Um, HST was like the closest I could get to that. And, you know, at Harvard Medical School, it seems like you were surrounded by a lot of cardiothoracic surgical um, uh, expertise and, and, and influence. And I come across a lot of cardiologists who say, you know, I was interested in surgery, but, and you're the individual who was saying, you know, I was interested in cardiology, but. And, yes, that's true. And you know, who were those individuals who sort of made that intervention that that uh, re-steered you from cardiology uh, future to a, a cardiothoracic surgical future? So I really had no intention of going into surgery. I just I didn't even think about it at all. And so when I had my rotations it didn't bother me that surgery was my first rotation. I sort of figured like, okay, well, I'll just get into, this will be my exposure to the clinics. And, um, and in fact, we would have our general surgery blocks and then we would have electives. And so I remember picking thoracic for my elective and we, there was a sub eye on there. And so they were like, oh, well, I'm a sub eye and I'm really interested in going into this. So can I scrub in all of Matisse and Grillo's cases? And so I was like, sure, go ahead. I'll just, you know, go with somebody else. And so I think I scrubbed in John Wayne's cases. And then at the time, Doug Wood was actually the fellow on the service. 
And so, you know, it was sort of like after the end of my, you know, a couple of weeks on the service or something, he's, he mentioned to me, he was like, have you ever thought of surgery? He was like, I think you'd be good at it. You, you, you might consider that. And so just for, you know, medical students and, and things like that, it's sort of those types of encouragements or comments actually can make a really big difference because I had never thought of it. And so then I was just like, Hmm, I am enjoying this. I mean, and then I was like, well, but I'm pretty sure I want it to be on the heart. And of course I was like very intimidated by the idea of cardiac surgery. And I was like, Oh, they're, they're going to be mean and this is going to be, it's really hard. And I was like, I don't really know if that's really the right specialty for me. And so I I was like, but I could give it a try. I said, that's what these, that's what medical school is for. Just get the exposure and sort of see if that's something that I would want to do. And so I ended up just saying, okay, I'll do a sub-eye for a month at the Brigham. And so David Adams was actually the resident, the chief resident, I think, on the service at the time. And Larry Cohn was the chief, obviously. And really, David Adams was very encouraging and sort of welcoming to the idea. It turned out he was also from North Carolina. So I felt like, oh, well, this is someone who was like, you know, from where I was from, understood kind of the background that I was from. And it was, it was just exciting to be in those operations and watch them. And I remember things like, as a medical student, he'd let me tie down the aortic cardioplegia stitch at the end. And I'm like, now that I look back on that, I'm like, really? You let me do that? That's a senior practice, you're not. Yeah, exactly. I was practicing a lot of knots. So I got to do that and then just sort of watching, you know, how calmly they could deal with situations. If you had to open the chest of the unit, I remember watching that being the one sewing the sewing things onto the heart as you kind of sealed it over with your eye band and things like that. And, and then eventually I was just like, wow, I'm really, I really enjoy all of this. And so it it didn't matter that I was like pre-rounding at 4.30 in the morning and I'd get out of the cases at like 1030 at night. I was so interested that I was always like, you know, remember me and call me when there's a heart transplant. I want to go see a heart transplant. And so I remember getting to go, um, you know, get get the organ and things like that. And those experiences really um, sparked my interest. And I really thought, you know, I maybe I can do this. And so that's kind of why I decided I would go into cardiac surgery. You know, it's fascinating. You know, you had a past SDS president as your fellow and a uh, past AATS president uh, as your chief resident. So, you know, past SDS president, Dr. Wood and AATS president and um, Dr. Adams. But it's the, the fascinating part is that not as the esteemed positions where they are now, but as a fellow as a chief resident, as a trainee, they took an interest in you and that relatively brief moment in your professional career totally changed your career path. Yeah, that's true. It really did actually, because I was very much set on going into cardiology and, you know, it, 
it turned out that when, I mean, part of the reason I wanted to go into cardiology was because I developed myocarditis before I went to college. And when I developed myocarditis, I was helicoptered from my town, my hometown to Duke. And so my CCU attending was Robert Califf. So, I mean, it's, it's actually kind of an interesting thing to see where all these people have gone to. And obviously I was, you know, planning on this path for cardiology. Um, but in the end, I really enjoyed, you know, a lot of the aspects of surgery. Now I would say that in many ways that the interplay between interventional cardiology and cardiac surgery are sort of coming together. And so in some ways, Later on in my career, I've actually been able to kind of pull the two together. So it's an interesting kind of mix that although I ended up picking cardiac surgery, I now do both. I do parts of the things that I do with the interventional cardiologists and I do parts of the things that I do with surgery. And it's, it's really a nice perspective to kind of have um, both of those sort of skill sets. So yeah, so at age 16, you developed a compensated heart failure and had to be rushed to the hospital. That's true. And it wasn't, you know, it's one of those things where I really identify with a lot of my patients in terms of when they're not recognizing their symptoms. Mm. And so I think that, you know, it was, it started out as being, I just was more fatigued and, and I was like, oh, I'm just out of shape. You know, I was like, oh, I'm just out of shape. I'm like 16. I'm, I'm not doing any exercise. And, and then, in fact, it was really that, you know, I was developing heart failure and I sort of presented with nausea and vomiting and sort of abdominal issues. And that's kind of how it started, um, but then had to get helicoptered to Duke. Interestingly, I actually am one of the few people that's probably had this twice because I actually had it again during my residency at Johns Hopkins. Wow. So um, that time, I have to say, was a lot scarier because now I actually had gone through medical school and I'd seen what our transplants were like and I knew all of the implications, uh, which I did not know when I was 16. So it definitely, um, those sorts of experiences definitely had sort of, sort of uh, changed which paths and how I went forward. Were you able to avoid transplant? I was able to avoid transplant. And did um, Dr. Uh, Cameron still make you take call from your hospital bed or <laughs> you get time off? So uh, I actually had one of our... I think it was our 1109 is what we used to call the uh, first year fellow mm -hmm. at Hopkins for cardiothoracic surgery. And so I remember that when my blood pressure was going down and I heard the residents outside discussing, oh, you know, her blood pressure is low. I heard the whole discussion of them debating between dopamine and dibutamine. <laughs> and, and when they came in, I was like, you know, now might be a good time for the central line and the Foley. <laughs> That's what I told them. And so they couldn't get the central line in. So I had to ask Pete Gruber, who was the 1109, to come in and put in the central line on me. Hey, so, you're the rare patient that gets to pick 
the people who do the, the minor procedures on them. Or they could have given you a mirror and you could have put your own central line. <laughs> so after completing residency at, and cardiothoracic fellowship at Hopkins, and we could do like a whole another podcast on the Hopkins experience, but you actually went to a, a geographic location that's relatively new for you for your career journey. Yeah, that's actually very true. I think that since I grew up in the South and I'd been in the Northeast and I'd been in the Mid-Atlantic, I think I really wanted to just explore, you know, the West Coast. Um, I And so it, for me, I actually applied to like every place. I just cold turkey sent my like CV and letter to like every in- academic institution on the West Coast. And it actually turned out that Dr. Merrick was like, oh, you know what? We're actually going to be having a position posted at some point. So it kind of worked out that I'd already sort of like blasted everyone along the West Coast to see if there was any uh, positions available. And it turned out there was one at UCSF. I will also point out that it was a really bad time to come out of training because it was 2002 and there were like no jobs on the market. It was sort of the start of the kind of downhill in terms of like the job market for CT over about a decade before it kind of came back up. Um, So I was fairly fortunate that both where I wanted to be actually did have um, some positions available. Now you are you have received NIHR one funding, you have received VA Merit Award funding, and so have had a really productive research enterprise. How did you develop that sort of research success and that grant funding success? So I think that it was actually pretty challenging to do because I was sort of split half time between the VA and UCSF. And they're not next to each other. They're not sort of like Portland has, you know, you walk across and you're right at the VA and and Duke is pretty similar uh, in that way too. For us, between the traffic and the parking issues, like it's a good 30 minutes, even though it's such a short distance between getting from one parking lot and finding a parking space at the other parking lot. And so it was just, uh, it was a bit challenging trying to have sort of two facilities to go back and forth operating at two facilities and trying to build the lab. But I will say that with the lab, it really was just about just starting somewhere. I think Dr. Ratcliffe was actually a a biomechanics person. He actually had a biomechanics laboratory. And although I really had no background in that particular field, I, I was actually in Baumgartner's lab. All of my research had been in circulatory arrest. Um, it was, I think he was interested in looking at ventricular aneurysms and mitral valve repairs. And he said, well, you're interested in aortic work and aortic valve disease. So just have at it basically. So then I just really just started by asking simple questions that I didn't feel like were answered before, like what are the differences in the material properties in different regions? What are some of the issues that we have? And so I think I would say very early on in my research time, I was most interested really in transcatheter aortic valves. That's really where I started my research program. And it was because since I finished in 2002, that was the first in man 
for transcatheteric valves. And I saw that and I was like, this is going to change cardiac surgery. I, I, when I saw that, I was like, if I don't get in on this now, like we're going to lose our foot in the door sort of thing, the way we lost PCI and cabbage. And so I was like, I need to understand this. And so one of the first things, one of the first grants I actually wrote was on transcatheter valves. And some of the first studies that we looked at were at the time, we didn't know whether the, like why the valve wouldn't move or why, or where it would move if it did. And so we started with doing some computational fluid dynamics just to see if the valve didn't have the calcium around it, would, would it actually eject into the aorta? Would it go into the ventricle? Like what would happen? And we actually found that there was a whole magnitude of force that was actually greater to have it go into the ventricle if you didn't have the calcium hold it because of the large pressure differential that you have from the aorta to the left ventricular and diastolic pressure. So starting with that, as sort of the first kind of question that I had, which was, you know, why is the thing not moving and, and what would cause it to move? We sort of moved on to the next thing in which was, you know, everyone was like, this is for the high risk. This is for the inoperable patients. And I was like, well, nobody really likes getting their valve redone. And that's going to be in its own way, a risky procedure, but is it going to work in valves that are smaller surgical biprostheses? And of course, none of the companies would give us their valves. Uh, they're very proprietary about that. So we actually sort of made our own sort of sapien-like valves. And then we had tons of bioprosthetic valves, which we actually would bioglue like calcium onto them and put them in a left heart simulator. And we're actually able to show that, you know, as long as you sort of had a 23 millimeter sort of size valve, like an Edwards valve, that you would have a reasonable hemodynamics, but that you would start to have problems with having a smaller valve within a smaller valve if you were talking about a 19 or a 21 millimeter valve. So then we, you know, so we looked at that as well. I'd actually tried to write an R01 on our valve and valve work, but we didn't get funded. And then at some point it was, it was actually getting challenging because we didn't have access to the valves at the time. So some of the things that we were interested in, it was going to be challenging to kind of publish. You know, we had published a lot on transcatheter valves, um, but it was starting to get hard because they wanted us to have the real valves and it was very challenging to get the real valves. So then since we had done so much material property work on the aorta, we actually started also looking at ascending thoracic aortic aneurysms and realized that, you know, we have these very sort of arbitrary cutoffs in some ways, just based on epidemiological data that anything over five and a half, we'd operate because it's six centimeters, there was a higher percentage of dissection and rupture. But instead it didn't seem like since so many patients and we looked at our own data, it seemed like a vast proportion of our patients, I took like the UCSF uh, dissection data, there were like a, almost 60% of the patients were actually less than five and a half centimeters when they had their dissection. So in other words, these aneurysms were actually having dissection before the five and a half. And then that was actually shown in a much more rigorous way um, by the IRAD registry and, and Pape's group. 
So we started looking at it from a biomechanics perspective and just thought, okay, a dissection is really the tear of the wall. So from a biomechanics perspective, you could look at it as when the stress on that wall exceeds the strength of the wall, then that may cause that initial tear. And so the only problem is you really can't measure stress. You really have to use sort of computational models for that. Um, so we started basically developing finite element models to better understand the sort of stress and uh, strength relationship. So some of the things that we're looking at now are, and we're actually, you know, in the midst of trying to submit a bunch of these different papers that we've looked at, is that one, you know, the veteran population, as you as you note, is a, has a lot of comorbidities. And in fact, they have a higher proportion of comorbidities for aneurysms than most populations. Um, but in one of the papers we just submitted, we didn't actually see much growth over time in those. And another thing that we're working on now is that we're seeing that even though there's no growth, there are separate populations of patients that'll either increase their stress over time or decrease their stress. So even though they don't meet surgical criteria, there may be a population of patients that are at higher risk of dissection because their geometry changes over time and their stress changes over time. And yet that's not reflected in diameter and length and, you know, over any of the sort of indexed clinical measurements. Um, so one of the things we really would like to do is eventually come up with these types of thresholds that we could then apply to patients that are currently not um, having those uh, diameter guidelines and really try to prevent dissection with elective surgery. So, I mean, that's incredibly fascinating how you took sort of the, the lessons learned from your transcatheter valve research and then brought them over to another question in regards to aortic research. And in that work, I found two th themes uh, based on the, the words of sort of you've, you've reiterated, one being question and the other understand. And so with that, I ask, you know, why is research important to you? I think that all of us as clinicians have a really fulfilling career by like fixing something for someone. You can take out the lung cancer, we can bypass, you know, blocked coronaries and replace valves. And there's an intrinsic satisfaction to both training people to be physicians and to taking care of our patients. Um, but at some point or another, like for training, at least you can expand your sort of level of influence because your trainees then take that forward. And for each individual patient, you're helping them. But I think what's helpful on the research side is that if you answer an important broad question, you can impact people you don't know at all. And you have a much larger influence on being able to prevent death and issues with, you know, morbidity and mortality on a scale that you probably can't reach um, as an individual in a clinical environment with just, you know, uh, apart from obviously like randomized clinical trials, obviously those make a huge impact for all patients. Um, but apart, but aside from things like clinical trials, research does have that opportunity to kind of reach a vast number of patients as opposed to a sort of an individual 
case-by-case um, -case basis. And your research has been extremely successful. And, you know, we asked you, you know, what were some of the biggest challenges in your career path? And you replied, it was challenging to develop an academic career as a junior faculty and try to have a life, get married, have a child, et cetera. Expand upon on that. Those are sort of challenges that one would see as they start the career. Yeah, I think what's, you know, there's only so much time in a day. And then there's sort of only so much that you can kind of focus and have a significant amount of effort put into. And so, uh, you know, certainly when I was sort of finishing training, I think I hadn't even found my sort of my husband and my life partner yet. And so I think that um, it was, it's just challenging to find the balance and the time when you already know something you can do well. And so work is a very fulfilling thing. And there's many things that you can make progress on and really try to help others by doing. Um, and then the other aspects, which are your life are sort of not so clear that you're going to have that. I mean, when you're sort of starting out and you're wondering if you're going to have a family and, a, and all of that, uh, you actually don't know what the outcome of that will be, but you hope for the best and it does work out. And so in the end, I do think that that's a, a thing to realize is that at some point you will, you know, meet the right person and have your family, but it does, it's not something that you know when that's going to happen. Yeah. And you have to kind of work it in with what you're doing. And so it was a little challenging at the time because the time I'm meeting the person and I'm having my family is also the same time I'm coming up for promotion. And so that's just a, it's just a difficult time to kind of like do all of those things at once. Um, and I think that's just a challenge that a lot of people face. Um, and, and frankly, it's a challenge even for surgeons that want to build academic careers because um, they do have operations as part of the mainstay of what they do. Like when you look at grant funding and things like that, so much of it is how much, you know, early career awards that are available. But in many ways, surgeons spend their early career perfecting their craft. That's what they want to do. They want to be good surgeons. And so from that perspective, it's sort of like they can't spend 100% of their time on research or else they'll end up being in the lab and not in the operating room. So like if you really want to do both, you have to sort of have time for both. But the pathways that we currently have to support academic research sort of force people to pick too early on and don't necessarily let them build their craft and and do that at the same time so I think that that is a challenge and if anything I mean one of the things that I've always said for the thoracic surgery foundation is that you know early careers should be as long as possible because they're trying to do so much and you can't do it in five years if you're going to do both. It's sort of like you have to extend the time frame that you let people get these types of awards and benefits because it has to take longer if they're really going to do both. And you have a daughter, correct? I do have a daughter. She's 12. Well, 12. And has she caught the bioengineering bug? <laughs> 
No, she's already told my husband and I, she has no interest in engineering and no interest in medicine. Oh. <laughs> but I'm sure she's going to take the, just like the lessons you learned from your parents as professors, she'll take the lessons that she learned from you as someone who has really synthesized academic cardiothoracic surgery, as well as service to our, our veterans in her future. So, you know, given that talk of sort of the, the future vision, what in your mind is the future of cardiothoracic surgery? I really do think that we're, we've already seen it start happening and it's just going to keep continuing. I think the concept of the heart team where the cardiologist and the cardiac surgeons work together for all of the processes and everything becomes more and more minimally invasive, whether it's the surgical approach or the catheter approach, um, they're all sort of aspects of minimally invasive. And there are things even that we have to think forward in terms of the future. So just as we've kind of seen, you know, PCI rise, but then people seeing the benefits of cabbage in certain circumstances, we're also, I believe, going to see a similar sorts of things happen with all of these valvular issues. So whether it is that we, you know, people talk about do they do the surgical valve first and then the catheter valve or the catheter valve first and then the surgical valve? I think that they're going to have to become sort of together. Some things are going to end up with surgery. Some things are going to have to develop new catheter solutions to repeat catheter procedures. And so all of these things, the, the fields just keep coming closer and closer together. And I think that's a good thing for patients because in the end, and that's what I actually did feel was a benefit of being a surgeon and then sort of later on training for some of the structural heart things is that you really see both perspectives and kind of can see like what you can offer the patients. And they might be different than what, you know, one side or the other would have thought of. Maybe it's a hybrid between the two. And so I do think that's kind of where the field will like continue to move is just more of this collaboration and more of different sort of hybrid approaches so that in the end for the patients, they have sort of minimally invasive approaches, but then have a way to understand heart disease over the long run. So I think some of those aspects, like how many times do you do a PCI or you do a cabbage and then a PCI? I think we're going to start looking at heart disease over the course of the patient's lifetime and trying to plan the procedures for what's going to happen next. So when the, that, this valve fails or that valve fails, what will we do next? How will we manage these types of diseases over a longer period of time? So most of our clinical trials have been relatively short with respect to the patient's lifetime. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Elaine, saying, you know, uh, we could see that the key word for you is excitement and the excitement that you have for our specialty, for the, the educational journey that one requires to enter our specialty, and then also your excitement for research and the questions and your quest to understand your bright view of the future of our specialty. Thank you very much. Thanks so much again. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. 
On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.